Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible and open with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is where we will begin this part of our worship where we study from the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Good to see you this morning. We have visitors with us. We want you to know that we're happy that you're here. We'd love to get to know you. And we are thankful that you've made the choice of all the things you could be doing this morning uh, to be here with us, worshiping God, learning about uh, the things of the Bible. And we are appreciative of that. If there is some way we can help you, we'd love to know about that. Please let us know. Uh, Please stick around for a minute after the service. We'd love to get to know you and talk to you a little bit. Uh, But we really appreciate you being here. I I understand it's Father's Day. I want to say Happy Father's Day to all our fathers. Uh, But I want you to know I don't have one of those Father's Day sermons planned, you know, 101 great fathers in the Bible or something like that. Uh, I have more of a burden on my heart this morning that I wanted to talk about, and so I hope you'll excuse me that. It's not because I've got fathering figured out and we don't need to talk about it, uh, but there are some other things that I wanted to address this morning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. Genesis 3 and verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So Adam and Eve have been forbidden from eating of the tree, and after they eat, immediately the cover-up begins. They begin to hide. They hide from God. They realize they're naked, so they hide their nakedness. They make loincloths, and they realize when God is coming, they hear his sound, and they hide from him so that God says, where are you? Finally, Adam answers. Isn't it kind of silly? How are you going to hide from God? But it's almost instinctual. In fact, it seems to me the reason this story resonates so much with us is because we all know that feeling. That feeling where we've done something and immediately we want to hide it. The cover-up begins. We don't go around telling people, look at this awful, embarrassing, shameful thing I've done. Instead, we hope no one will ever find out. And people have been hiding ever since the garden. We hide what we've done. We hide who we really are. We hide how we really feel. We show others a facade that we think will make them like us better. And I want to challenge that idea for a few minutes this morning. Hiding is bad for us. It keeps us from being truly known. It keeps us from being truly healed. Because what we refuse to acknowledge before ourselves and others and God, we cannot grow from. And I'm also concerned about how hiding keeps us from passing the faith on to another generation. Passing the faith on to those who don't believe in Jesus. Because it seems to me that if others hear a message about how the gospel has changed our lives and yet they see us hiding, then they'll know something's wrong here. And they'll be turned off from actually listening to the message of Jesus. So I want to challenge us today to quit hiding. I suspect that in this building we all have something that we could do better about admitting and owning. And I want to challenge you about that for a few minutes this morning. First, quit hiding your sin. In verse 8 of Genesis 3 it says, Genesis 3 and verse 8, 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Finally, after God calls out to them and they admit where they are and what they've done, they say, this is the reason we've disobeyed God. Verse 12, we have done what we shouldn't have done. Now, Adam, of course, blames that on Eve, and so you've got some of that going on. But the reason that they are hiding, physically hiding and also emotionally hiding, is because they've done wrong. They know they've done wrong, and they don't want to face the God who had told them not to do this. And so they hide because they know that their sin is not something they want to err in the light of day. Go with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua 7. Just want to establish in the beginning here this pattern of when we do things that we know are wrong, we have a tendency to hide them. And how the gospel teaches us to think differently about our sin. Joshua 7 is the story of Achan. If you remember what happens in Joshua 6 and 7 is that the Israelites come to the land of Jericho, come to the city of Jericho, and they're given the command, when you go into the city, don't take any of the spoil. But Achan, of course, sees the spoil and is impressed by it, and he decides to take it. Joshua 7 and verse 19, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold wings, 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So he takes the gold, he takes all these fancy clothes and all these things that he saw, but he doesn't wear them around. And he doesn't say, hey, guys, check out my gold. In fact, he doesn't go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff. What does he do? He buries it under his tent. He doesn't want anyone to know until, of course, God knows and all these things happen to make this come to life. And as much as we might be critical of Adam, and as much as we might be critical of Achan, haven't you done the same thing? Haven't you had things that you were so embarrassed for others to know? that you immediately tried to hide it? In fact, usually what we're thinking is, if people don't find out, then what do we say? I guess I've gotten away with it. I did it, and nobody found out, so I got away with it. Sometimes, though, it gets worse. Sometimes we go into a full-fledged cover-up. You remember the story of David? David has an affair with Bathsheba. And then after that happens, David appears to be fine. Okay, he's not bothered by any of this, but then Bathsheba sends a message to him that she's pregnant. So now he knows, I didn't get away with it after all. People are going to know there is going to be some physical evidence to what I've done. So the cover-up begins for David. David calls back Bathsheba's husband from the war. David tries to frame it so that it might be his child instead of David's. David gets Uriah drunk, but that doesn't work out. So over and over again, he tries to cover up what he's done. Finally, he sends Uriah back to the battlefield and says, withdraw from him, let them kill him. Uriah dies, but his blood is on David's hands. Now, I don't know about you, but that cover-up sounds a lot worse than the original sin, right? But haven't you had that happen to you before? 
Haven't you said something? And that maybe that just one lie then led to another lie and to another lie. You had to keep thinking about, oh yeah, I've got to tell that person thinks I was here, so I need to remember to keep that lie going. And suddenly you've got a whole web of deceit and problems that came just because in the very beginning you didn't want to admit your sin. Go with me to Proverbs 28. I think Proverbs here gives a really stark contrast in the two paths that we have when we realize we've done something wrong. Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. We're going to read verse 13. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. I guess in the sense of not hiding things, there's a rock under my shoe that I kept walking on, so I had to bend down and get it. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you see the two courses of action? Whoever conceals his sins will not prosper. That's the hiding that we talked about. That's Adam. That's David. That's Achan. And that's probably the course all of us have taken at some point in our lives where we did something and we immediately tried to hide it. On the other side of the verse, verse 13, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So here on the other side, we admit it, but we're done with it. It's not that we admit it in a proud way. And when I say quit hiding your sin, I don't mean flaunt it. I don't mean brag about it. I mean, I admit I've done wrong, I confess it, but I'm ready to do something different. I'm sorry for it. I want to move on. Those are the two paths we're talking about. One is about hiding. One is about confessing and forsaking. And that's tied to a path toward healing. So we say, this is what I've done. I'm sorry for it, and I'm done with it. And that's a very different course than trying to hide it. Go with me to John chapter 3. Jesus talks about this when he talks about how people respond to him. And he uses an image that I think will probably stick with you long after this lesson is over. The image of the light and the dark. John chapter 3. John 3, beginning in verse 19. Jesus is talking about how his coming has produced a certain effect among people in the world. John 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world... And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus says, I've come like a light in the darkness. And whenever I read these verses, I always, the image in my mind always is of the the kitchen at night. And we used to live in a house. This was a, not my mom's house, in case she's listening. But we used to live in a house when I live, would go stay with my dad. And there was, a, there was a time where that house was just infested with roaches. And when you would flip on the light, you would realize what had been there all along, but you hadn't seen. But the roaches, they're, they're, I don't know how they do this. They almost instinctually, as soon as the light comes on, they rush away. They don't like the light. They don't come to the light. You ever are in the forest at night and you you put a spotlight out, suddenly things run away from the light. They don't want to be seen. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I came into the world like a light in darkness. And there are some people that come to the light, but there are some that flee from the light. Look again at verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And the sad part is, 
The light is what could cleanse them and heal them. That's the truth about the things that we hide. If we get them out in the open, we can move on. We can deal with them. God can forgive. We can be humble. We can grow from them. But we have to quit hiding. And I will say, personally, of my own sins, I began to believe that when I would hide my sins, I began to believe they were far worse than they were. They took on this mythic proportion in my mind. So that I thought if anybody knew what I had done, they would have nothing to do with me. And so the idea of admitting it, confessing to somebody, of anybody knowing who I am and what I've really done, that's just too shameful. It could never happen. And I began to be even more determined to hide. I thought that people, if they knew that I had struggled with sexual sin or that they knew the degree of pride in my heart, if they knew how often I had lied, that they wouldn't have anything to do with me. And so it became bigger and bigger and bigger, and you hide it, and you hide it, and you hide it. But what I found is once you let those things out in the open, they lose their power. That's what light does. So Jesus says he is the light who has come to cleanse. So quit hiding your sin. Jesus also alerts us to the fact that we very often begin to focus on other people to distract ourselves from our own sins. The ticking time bomb that's going on in our hearts. Have you noticed? I'm sure you have. Have you noticed that we've become a culture of people who are constantly tearing down other people? We are constantly outraged at something somebody else is doing or saying. Have you noticed that? Whatever somebody's saying, there's just this outrage mob that follows around and just what's the next thing to be outraged about? Have you noticed how we want to vilify people and get them fired and ruin their lives and threaten them whenever they make a mistake? Have you noticed that? Despite the fact that every single one of us has made mistakes, we now are determined to ruin the lives of people who make certain mistakes? Isn't that interesting? It seems to me that in those situations, just for a moment, we get to distract ourselves from our own sinking ship. And say, let's look at them. Everybody look over there. They're the problem. Or as Jesus would say, we gleefully get to point out the speck in our brother's eye so we don't have to deal with the beam in our own eye. So quit hiding your sin. I understand. I'm not saying that we need to talk about our sin all the time to everybody. But it's not because we're ashamed to talk about it. I need people to know me and to know what I've done. I need God to know that I'm sorry for what I've done. I need people to say, hey, Jacob, is this the same thing that you used to have trouble with? I need people who are willing to say that to me. I need to quit acting like my sin happened 50 years ago in another time and another place. I am a sinner, and I regularly ask for God's forgiveness. I have parts of my life that the Lord has helped to heal. I have other parts of my life that are a daily battle. Yes, I'm a preacher, and I battle daily with sin, and I am resolved to quit hiding it. That's the point. You see, when I'm honest about my sin, God is glorified. Do you know why? Because it means God is still in the business of saving people, even though it's 2019. It's people like you and me, people who have done bad things and now stand in a different position because of Jesus. So quit hiding your sin. Second. Quit hiding your weakness. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to begin with. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1. We really do have a strong impulse to try to appear a certain way before other people. We want to minimize anything that would make us look weak, especially in the the business world and our careers. We have to appear. Nothing can be allowed to make us appear ignorant or incompetent or overwhelmed or anything like that. We've got to appear as if we've got it all together, no matter how much we don't have it all together. And I am impressed, as I read 2 Corinthians, how Paul does not take that approach at all. Paul is very much displaying his weakness for everyone. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were, so utterly, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of mercy. Did you notice what he said? He said, we were so overwhelmed that we wanted to die. In fact, we thought we were going to die. We thought it was all over. And yet he can say, I see good in that weakness. In verse 9, he says it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, that's the thing about weakness. Weakness is a blessing because it teaches us our dependence. Not our independence. That's an American idea. No, 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 no. Our dependence, that we're not good enough independent of others and independent of God. And that's the secret we're trying to hide, that we're not competent, that we're not sufficient, that we're not always in control. And Paul says, I'm done hiding that. I want you to know what happened. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know how desperate things were for me. Turn the page to 2 Corinthians 2. Now, in 2 Corinthians 2, behind this is the idea that, that Paul had written a hard letter, 1 Corinthians. And he, he tells them now, here's what I was thinking when I wrote that letter. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there who, to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you... Out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Do you see that? He says, you know, that letter, you just got the letter. But let me tell you the story of the letter. The story of the letter was, it was soaked in my tears. It was a hard letter to write. And doesn't that change things? Do you ever have those conversations after the fact where you go up to someone and say, I appreciate so much the way you took that. That was a hard thing for me to do. That was a hard letter for me to write. That was a hard meeting for me to lead. Whatever it is, you go and you say, this is what I was really thinking. And in that time when you let your guard down, you connect with people. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, let me tell you, this was hard because I care about you. I'm not just a preaching robot where I say, well, this you need to straighten this out and fix this. And it doesn't affect me. He says, it broke my heart and I don't want it to happen again. Look a little further, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the word, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Here he says, I I was so worried about how you were going to receive my letter. I couldn't even stay where I was until Titus could get there. I was just up in arms. Verse 14. 
But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? That last question just sticks out to me. Who is sufficient? Paul knows I'm not worthy of what I'm doing. To be the fragrance of Christ to people, to spread the gospel to people, I'm unworthy here. And throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul continues that thread. We're not going to read all of 2 Corinthians this morning, but Paul talks about it is God who makes me sufficient. He talks about how he's given this message in jars of clay like me. He talks about how God comforted him by the coming of Titus. He goes through a long section where he fake boasts about all the awful things that had happened to him that make him qualified to be an apostle. And I want you to look with me in 2 Corinthians 12 where he kind of sums it all up, makes his point. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the whole point. When I'm weak, I'm strong through Christ. When I'm not enough, I see my need for him. When I'm overwhelmed, I reach out. But has this happened to you? When you feel like you are strong and experienced and prepared and competent, then you think you can handle it alone. And inevitably, those are the times where you are most distant from God. His power is made perfect in my weakness. It's interesting because I read quite a bit in the psychological genre, and there are some famous psychologists who have made a lot of money about talking about vulnerability and the power of vulnerability. And they talk about how if we can stop acting and just show our vulnerability, well, people relate to that. They understand vulnerability better than the pretense that we often put up. And while I I agree with a lot of that literature because it dovetails with what the Bible teaches, I have to stop. Because for a lot of those things, the goal of being vulnerable is merely to connect with people and then make money off of them. I want to connect with you so that I can be a great business leader. I want to connect with you so you do what I want. That's not what Paul is saying. He says, my weakness shows Christ's power. This is about God, not about me. And when I hide my weakness, I limit what Christ can do in me. You see, the story of my weakness is the story of God's power. They go hand in hand. So, when God is able to use 300 men and Gideon to defeat that huge army of 120,000, it's the story of weakness and God's power. And when God is able to use blunt blades in the Bible, like Samson, like Esther and Mordecai, people who are weak, but God uses in an amazing way. Who gets the glory for that? You don't look at those stories and say, wow, what a great person Jephthah was. I hope you don't. 
what a great person Samson was. I really hope you don't. You end up reading that story and say, what a God that can use people like that. That's the point of weaknesses. It's okay to be weak because we're connected to a strong God. But that pretense where we hide our weakness, where we desire to appear strong and capable and competent, that has real problems because it keeps us from admitting our sin. You see, if I can't show weakness, then I can't ever admit I've done anything wrong or I could have chosen better in any way because I've got to act like I've got my act together. In fact, I can't even admit I made a bad choice because then you might not think I'm quite so capable. So I've been preaching for 15 years. That just happened this month. And I wish I had some of those sermons back. I have made some bad decisions about topics to preach on. I have misunderstood some things. I made some very serious bad judgment calls with people. My heart hasn't always been in the right place, even when I've been up here. I've had countless times where I've sat on those pews before I got up to speak and wondered, am I going to even make it through this lesson? But you know what? The fact that God can use that shows something about him, not me. Parents, have you ever made mistakes? Do you ever feel like you barely make it through the day as a parent? Or like you barely made it through a whole life stage as a parent? Have you ever messed up at your job? Seriously messed up? Do you ever have things you'd say, man, I really, really didn't do very well? Elders, do you have any decisions you wish you could redo? It's okay to be weak. Quit hiding your weakness. You see, if we can admit it, it lowers us to the point that we can hear criticism again. We can evaluate ourselves. And most of all, we can give glory to God. I will add this. We should think about the impact our pretending has on other people. I have had people comment to me after visiting our assemblies and assemblies I've been a part of in other places, tell me that they felt like they didn't belong at that congregation because everybody there had everything together, and that wasn't them. So if we act like we're strong and capable and competent and everything is fine all the time, how will people who are normal like us ever think they belong? Quit hiding your weakness. And the third thing I want to say is quit hiding your emotions. I don't really want to talk about how this happens in ordinary life. I want to talk about what happens here in worship. We are emotional beings. How we feel is a part of who we are. And God not only made us that way, he also wants those emotions tuned toward him in worship. Go with me to James chapter 5 for a moment. James 5. James 5 and verse 13. 
very simple verse, but I think you'll see the point I'm driving at. James 5 and verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Do you notice something? Do you notice how emotions prompt worship? We worship out of a surplus of emotions in our heart. We are feeling something, and so we pray. We are feeling something, and so we sing. We pray out of suffering. We sing out of cheer. We express ourselves when we worship. That's part of the point of worship. This is Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, the emotional part of us, singing our gratitude. The word dwells in us richly and then comes out in heartfelt singing. So the idea is emotions naturally have a voice when we worship and give thanks to God. The Bible is full of emotional displays. How many times when you read the Old Testament do people get bad news and they tear their clothes? How many times? Over and over again. And then you've got guys like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is pulling the hair out of his beard. I mean, that hurts. He's upset. They wear sackcloth. They sit and weep and mourn for days. They fast and pray. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because that is an emotion that prompts a certain spirit and takes us to God. Or Jesus gets angry when he sees the hardness of heart of his fellow Jews. I think there has to be some anger when he turns over the tables in the temple. Moses is angry when he comes down off the mountain and the people are worshiping a calf that they've made. And he grinds the calf up and makes the people drink the water that's mixed with the gold. He's mad. Paul is angry over the Judaizing teachers who have come in and tried to turn over the converts he has made back to a different system. Sometimes anger is appropriate, and sometimes rejoicing is appropriate. The unit goes on his way rejoicing. I suspect, don't you think, if you saw the unit going on his way rejoicing, you might know he's happy? Maybe there's a ghost of a smile. He goes on his way rejoicing. Emotions are natural. The jailer has a big meal, and rejoices with all his household that he had believed in God. By the way, that meal was like a 3 a.m. affair. Emotion. The gospel touches our emotions, and we need to quit hiding our emotions in worship. I believe a lot of the reason that we hide our emotions in worship is a response to Pentecostalism, that we're responding to excesses of emotion. Now, there are some excesses in Pentecostalism. I'm not really here to talk about that this morning. But that doesn't mean we can't express ourselves, and it doesn't mean that Pentecostals have a monopoly on people saying amen or hallelujah or thank you, Lord. I also believe a lot of this is cultural. I still remember the first time I preached at a congregation where people said amen. It was crazy. I would preach, and, and the thing is, as a preacher, you guys don't see you guys. I see you. But I suddenly realized, after I preached at that congregation, and almost every point I would make, I would hear, amen. Whoa. But I knew they agreed. 
I knew they were with me. And then when they were quiet, I knew I'd said something wrong. But most of the time, I don't know what you're thinking. First church I preached at, we had a man set about halfway toward the back. And I would be making a point in my sermon, and he would look up at me. He'd read his Bible. He'd look up like this, squinting, kind of scowling. And so when I see that expression, by the way, if any of you guys want to do that, I will keep preaching because I want to explain it to him. I think he's disagreeing. I want to keep talking about it. A couple of months after that began to happen, he mentioned to me, man, I really need to get some glasses. I cannot see you when you're up there. <laughs> and I realized I had misinterpreted. It's interesting to me. Is the church building the only place where we're not allowed to show emotion? We have to check our emotions at the door here. That's just not appropriate. Is that really a biblical idea? Should men apologize when they tear up? They sit here at the table and describe what Jesus has done for them. No. I understand that's not the main feature of our worship. It wasn't the main feature in a lot of these situations that I described. I understand that shouldn't be manipulated. I'm not saying let's bring in a bunch of candles and mood music and that kind of stuff because that will make us feel more emotional. We could do that easily. That's not what I'm suggesting. And that doesn't mean that every emotion deserves to be expressed. You might genuinely feel jealousy. You might need to calm that down. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that if we say that Jesus has changed our lives and we are encouraging our children and our visitors and our friends and neighbors to live out of step with the world, if we are saying that we believe this book is God's word, if we have hope of eternal life despite death, then it's going to seem disingenuous if that doesn't touch our emotions. And people will notice. If people see us worshiping and they think it's a drudgery, what are they going to think? Quit hiding your emotions. So yes, it's okay to smile. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be excited. Sometimes you will be overcome by things you're feeling or hearing. Be authentic and quit hiding. Quit hiding your sin. Quit hiding your weakness. Quit hiding your emotions. Adam and Eve started by hiding, and we still try to hide. I want to urge us all to authentic living. But I will warn you, it's going to challenge you. It will lower your estimation of yourself. It will require thinking about yourself in a different way. But I also want to call out to those who may be hiding things who are here in our assembly. I want you to think about the conversations that could be changed if you were to be more authentic, if you were to let down your guard, if you were to confess your sins, if you were to admit your weakness, if you were to talk about how you feel. And if there is a bigger problem that you need to let us know about and help you with, we would love to do that. This would be a great opportunity 
to practice what we've been talking about. I was reading about a group of people in a denominational church who focused on what they called intercessory prayer. And they met a certain night every week for six years to pray for people in their congregation. And one of the men involved in that said, we've had people come for prayer about job situations, troubles with children, chaotic issues within the extended family, family is- financial issues, and even marital conflict. But in six years, never ever has anyone come for prayer regarding sexual struggles or situations. Wow. The author of that book commented on that. He said that churches often communicate by word and deed. That we are fragile here and we can handle a lot of things, but we can't handle that. Sexual sin, mm-mm. We can't do anything with it. And I want to say, for my part, if that's your area of struggle, we can help you and we want to help you with that and with whatever is the burden that you are hiding. Don't you want to lay that down? Hiding things takes a remarkable toll on us, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And you can let that burden go. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. So I encourage you, if there's something you need to make known this morning, if there is a way that you need to change your life, or if you're ready to become a disciple of Jesus, be baptized into Christ. If there's any need you have, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.